Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're uh, continuing um, this conversation that we've been in really for much of the summer on what it means to be mature, uh, spiritually mature. Uh, depends on uh, 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 emotional maturity. And we've been using the book, The Emotionally Healthy Church by Peter Scarzero uh, as a kind of a, a framework, a guide to uh, give us some, some uh, ways to think about this. But I think this morning, uh, as, it, as we kind of wrap, wrap it up, uh, it focuses down, and maybe this has not been clear throughout. I think it, we've tried to make it, but I haven't always done a real good job of that. So let me be, be crystal clear on this this morning. The, the point of maturity is not so that you can be mature. The point of maturity is so you can be useful, so that you can partner with God in saving the world. That's what you're here for. That's why he invited you to join him on his mission. Uh, that's why he um, uh, keeps poking at things that get in the way of your usefulness. Remember, we've used this language for the last, however long the garden's really been here, that God is looking for men and women whom he can empower to do whatever they want, who he can trust. Uh, and so we've been playing around with the ways that disable us from usefulness, that contribute to immaturity, uh, that get in the way of our actually being a partner or capable of partnering with God in our neighborhoods and our friendships and so on and so forth um, under this kind of rubric of the emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, spiritually mature uh, community. So the, the telos, the outcome of maturity, is usefulness, is, is that, that I become the kind of person that God can trust alone in the dark. I don't need somebody watching me all the time. God doesn't have to tell me what to do all the time. Uh, I've become trustworthy. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of you, I don't know, I, I, just sitting with this for a minute, I think some of you are anxious because um, you don't hear God's direction as clearly as you once used to, uh, can I suggest to you it's because he doesn't need to tell you what to do. It's because he trusts you. He's with you. you, you you've got it. Now, now go what you know to do. D does that make sense? Uh, in fact, the more mature you become, the less often you hear from God, at least in terms of direction. Um, and that's hard for us because we're, we're constantly, you know, and he's, and, and, and what are you doing up there? I'm, I'm right with you. I'm right here. I'm right here in the space around your ears. I'm right here. And he wants to invite us to become that uh, for others. Um, and I do think it's important as we think through then, what are, what, what are we looking for when we think about maturity? And Jesus, of course, is very helpful here. Uh, Paul, his friend, suggests to us the same kinds of things, that the primary mark of maturity is love. That's how we know that we've made progress towards spiritual or emotional maturity. What gets in the way of love? Maybe it's the this, this story that I've been telling myself. over. The, maybe it's the brokenness that I've experienced that I haven't invited Jesus into. Maybe it's the grief 
that I've not permitted myself to own. Maybe it's the kinds of things that we've been talking about over the last few, few weeks, right? But the outcome of this, and Jesus is crystal clear on this. If you look at it in John chapter 13, it's really hard to miss what he says. A new command I give you. Remember, this is, this is, this is within 24 hours of his death. Actually, probably closer to, to about 18 hours. When he says this, 18 hours later, he's going to be dead. And he's saying it to a group of guys, half of whom will be dead within the next five years. So he is putting a lot of weight on these words. And listen to what he says. A new command I give you, here it is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Anybody unclear on the, on the concept? He says it over and over again. He wants to pummel it through our yada yada attitudes to, to, to recognize it, it, having words of wisdom, knowledge, prophetic words. Take them or leave them. It's wonderful. Praying for people and seeing them healed. Wonderful. Not the point. Right? Visions, dreams, great, not the point. What's the point? Love one another. If all of that stuff doesn't contribute to this, it's, it's a waste of time. Right? What we're after is that you love one another, and Jesus is crystal clear on this. How? The way that I have loved you. Anybody just kind of blown back against the wall of your own life by that phrase? How did he love you? He gave his life up for you. That's, if he's to be believed, <laughs> is the only thing that's going to change the world. Jesus is aware that fear of punishment will not motivate good behavior for very long. But love will change the source of behavior permanently. So that's why he comes to us, not first of all with condemnation and judgment, but first of all with embrace and acceptance of love. He doesn't hang around with sinners so that they would become saints. He hangs around with sinners because he loves them. And that is what enables us to become saints. That space that's created. Does that make sense? So he invites us into this, and this is his strategy. This is how, and, and please, you, I moved over this too quickly. This is how everybody's going to know that you're my disciple, that you've spent time with me, that you've been shaped by me, right? Not your holier-than-thou attitude, but your gut level, boots on the ground, dust between your toes, way that you walk with people and love them well. That's how they're going to know, right? Uh, it's like, it, it, I've told you this before, but it's, it's something that I think I want to underline every once in a while, especially in, in North America right now, where being Christian being evangelical, I can't, we can't use those words anymore. It takes 83 weeks to define what kind of Christian you are. So I, when people ask me, well, are you a Christian? My typical response is I, I'm, I'm not actually competent to make that evaluation. I, don't, I can't answer that question. <laughs> here's, here's what I'd like you to do, though. I'd like you to follow me around for a year or two. And if by the way that I live, I remind you of Jesus then you can conclude that I'm a Christian. That's what Christian means, right? We have been shaped by the character of Christ in such a way that people know we've been hanging out with him. 
So how did Jesus love us? Here's his strategy, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Are we clear on all of this? Right? Even though through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, that life was the light of all mankind, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not come overcome it, and even though all of that is true, that word did not count on that supremacy as adequate. Here's what he did. He became flesh, he made his dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson says he moved into our neighborhoods. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, the glory of the one and only Son. He's full of grace and truth. Nobody's seen God at any time, but the one and only Son, who himself is God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Two quick comments on this. Notice what John is saying back there in verse 14. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son, come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those words, grace and truth, uh, are, are the English translations of two Greek words that John uses that are translations of two Hebrew words that characterize the nature of God. Uh, so, so grace and truth moving back into Hebrew are the Hebrew words chesed and chemet. They're the words that God uses to identify himself to his friend Moses. When Moses says, show me your glory, this is the God who shows up. The God who covers Moses in the cave with the back of his hand, passes in front, Moses can see where God was and hears the echo of God's character bouncing off the mountains. The Lord is filled with loving kindness and tender mercy, compassion. The Hebrew words in behind that, those ideas are chesed and chemet. This is who God is, right? This is his character. This is what he's like. When those words translate into Greek and from Greek into English, they become grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. The same request that Moses had, we have. We want to see your glory. John says, then look at Jesus. When you see Jesus, you see everything in him that made God God. He is full of grace and truth. Not only that, nobody's seen God at any time. But Jesus, his only begotten, who comes from him, he has made him known. He has, the language in behind that, sorry, sorry to geek out on you on this, but this is important to me. He has exegeted him. He has unpacked him fully. You have a problem with the God of the Old Testament? As sometimes we do, because we don't know him, we don't understand him. Here's John's solution. Hang around with Jesus long enough until you get to know his father from his perspective. He's the one who's unpacked the God of the Old Testament. And I'm suggesting that if you're curious or anxious about the God of the Old Testament, that you look at him through the lens of Jesus. That's what John invites us to. And now, please notice, his intention is that you become the lens through which people look 
to see what God is really like by imitating him in his behavior, by coming to this world, becoming flesh, even though he spoke it into being. Can you imagine the limitations on, uh, on someone who was the word of God having to learn to speak? The one in whom everything holds together being held by a 14, 15-year-old girl. That's incarnation. Incarnation is, is, is entering into another's world in such a way that they can accept you or reject you on their terms. In such a way that they view you as one of them. In such a way that you have become one of them. I love that when Jesus was incarnated, when Jesus came to be with us, he did not come into a, a palace or a temple. He came into a stable. He was born as a blue call, to a blue-collar worker's family. He was, he was an immigrant. He was a refugee. He was a persecuted minority. His name was common. Jesus was the name of every fifth boy in the first century. There was nothing remarkable about him. In fact, when his disciples met him for the first time, Isaiah picks this up. There's nothing really impressive about him. But then he talks. And you realize that he speaks as one who has some authority. Why? Because he lives before he speaks. And it is out of the fullness of his life that his words have depth, weight, and meaning. Do you think that might make a difference, by the way, in the way that we orient ourselves to the secular world into which we are sent? Right? Well, that's Jesus' plan. There isn't any other. Uh, here's Paul's take on it. In your relationships, this is Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships now with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Jesus does who, even though he existed, he was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Anybody else just freaked out by that? I mean, we have, we have Disney stories of genies whose appearance elicits the question. You get three wishes, Master, and the wise... Genie master says, I want unlimited wishes as my first wish. I mean, we've gamed the system. Wouldn't the world be a better shape if you were in charge? If you could use, if you had unlimited power, because I mean, let's be clear, I know how y'all ought to live, right? Wouldn't it be lovely just to make people do the right thing, right? Especially on the 405 freeway. If you're driving slower than everybody else, move to the right, bucko. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Right? I mean, but here is, here is some, and a minor thing, right? Here is, here is someone who actually could make his will occur. And what does he do with that unlimited power? He never uses it for his own advantage. He never uses it for his own advantage. Instead, he uses it for your advantage. 
And he invites you to learn the use of power then from him. Right? Apparently, I'm not yet ready to be trusted with that kind of power. Because I frankly would use it for my own benefit. At least to some degree. I mean, in service of the rest of the world, of course. But, you know. We all, we all play the game at one level or another. You know, my marriage would be better if my spouse simply did what I asked him or her to do. Really? 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 So you'd be married to yourself, and that would be a good thing? My friendships would be markedly better if everybody ran their lives the way I thought that they should. Really? Really? And, and the silliness of it is demonstrated in, in the, the, the polarization of our culture that is, just seems to be getting worse and worse. And we trust power when Jesus gives it up. What is Jesus trusting? He's trusting love because he knows that power has its limitations, right? So he made himself nothing. He took on himself the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about this for just a minute. Jesus was the only being in the history of the world who had to obey in order to die. The rest of us, we're going to die. Not a whole lot we can do about it. Jesus, in order to die, had to obey. That's remarkable. And it indicates the kind of trust, then, that enabled the Father to say he could exalt him to the highest place. Give him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of the Father. Why? Because Jesus is going to use that unlimited power for his own advantage. He will use it for the advantage of the rest of the creation. He will use it to serve. That's what incarnational love means. That's what it means for us to love one another, have the same attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Paul, just before this, says, look, I, here, here's a way to think about this. I want you to regard to treat one another as better than yourself, as you're better. Now, you know they're not. But begin at least by treating them as if they were. You see what he's after here? This is the only thing that's going to make a final difference. This is the way the kingdom comes. Use whatever power you have for the good of others. Not out of my weakness, not out of my insecurity, not out of my fear, not out of my, 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 my sense of, of what is right. This is why we have to deal with all of that emotional baggage because if we don't deal with that, guess what's going to govern how we use whatever power we have? I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm uh, I'm to exercise power to maximize my position. So the primary strategy in this, in, this, in this nutshell of an idea, the primary strategy of incarnation is very simply this, to be present. To be where you are when you're there. And to be with whomever you are with when you're with them. That's really hard. I don't know if you've noticed this. 
but being where you are is probably the singlest, single hardest place in the world to ever be. Right? Even here, this morning, as we sit here in, 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 this, in, this, in this place, it's very possible for me to be thinking of where I'm, what I have to do this afternoon, what I should have done, this, the conversation I, 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 I had yesterday, or work that has to be done. Anybody else f- find yourself drifting in and out of your body? Your body stays more or less stable. But you are in and out of it moment by moment. Jesus told us it was going to be like this. Sometimes Jesus says, I'm going to be laying down such powerful truth, and it's going to bounce off your forehead like seed off of a, off of a road. The birds are going to get it. You're not even going to know that you were pummeled with glory. <laughs> okay, that's going to happen. Right? That's going to happen. So, so don't get too excited when you don't get it all the time. However, the goal, the strategy of emotional health is actual presence. And the primary way, the challenging way, the way, candidly, that I'm still trying to learn into, to be present to people in a way that honors them is to learn to listen. To listen. Here's Jesus' little brother. My brothers and sisters, take note of this. Write this down. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, there's an algorithm for Facebook that actually might be helpful. Right? Quick to listen, quick to hear, seeking to understand. How many times have you found yourself saying things because you stopped listening halfway through a sentence, only to have to pull your words back in. It's like, the, it's like on Outlook, on, on your email program. So-and-so wishes to recall the email. Sorry. Now I'm going to read what you originally sent. Why, why do you want to recall it? I mean, do, 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 do you know? And, 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 and we wish in, in real life, don't we? That, that we had kind of a 30-second dummy button that if, if we could, or maybe a three-hour dummy button if I could just pull back. You don't get any of that, right? So James says, here's a way to fix this. At, listen at least as twice as much as you speak. And, and watch out for anger because it disables listening. It, it, it disables capacity to be actually present. So listen to hear. Listen to learn. Listen until you learn. How many times have I responded to somebody without ever actually knowing what they said, what they meant? It's, it's a task that I have to give to, to, to some of my students every once in a while in the writing of a paper, right? Those of you who are teachers know what I mean. And if you cannot state the position of the author whom you are critiquing in such a way that that author would understand that as his or her position... You can't critique it. And, and if, if, can I just suggest that if Christians were to do this, this would shut down most of our contributions to public discourse. We don't even know what we're talking about, but that doesn't stop us from talking. <laughs> and attaboying one another in the echo chamber that is Facebook. Ah, oh, that'll take them down. <laughs> They're not reading your posts. Anybody here had your mind changed by Facebook? 
course not. We're just talking to ourselves. Self-congratulatory. And, and I gotta be honest, in these recent days, Christian community, we are, we are throwing mud on ourselves by the ways that we speak disparagingly about those who hold positions other than ours. We don't get to do that. You can disagree. You can disagree all you want. Jesus had no problem disagreeing with people. But he never treated them as less than persons. Right? And this is the strategy. We, we, we listen. We don't listen um, uh, uh, so that we can make a point. We don't listen hoping they'll stop talking so we can insert our wisdom. We don't, we don't listen to gain ammunition, to sharpen our, our sword, our, our point. We, we listen not even really to find points of commonality so that we can leverage it to an outcome like a good salesperson does. We listen seeking to understand even though we know we're not probably going to fully understand. We listen to accept. We listen with honoring curiosity. We listen with a desire for intimacy to know and be known. Parker Palmer, people are not problems to solve. They are mysteries to honor. David Augsburger, my professor at Fuller, said this, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are indistinguishable. Have you ever been listened to that profoundly by someone? There is nothing more humanizing than a person who has nothing better to do than hear your story. Right? Now, the clear truth of the matter is we need to get better at this. We can't listen this way to everybody. We need to have clear, and, and we'll get to this in just a minute. We need to know where the boundaries are. We need to know where the limitations are. I get all of that. Jesus didn't do it with everybody all the time either. There were some people with whom he uh, 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 created some boundaries. John chapter 2 makes it clear. At the back end of John chapter 2, many people were committing themselves to him, but he on his part was not committing himself to them because he knew it was in their heart. So this is not just this sloppy agape. This is a deliberate and intentional strategy of incarnation that invites the knowing of a boundaried person by a boundaried person. This is the whole point of emotional health. So that we can choose to walk together. Here's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Where there are many words... Transgression is unavoidable. Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? But the one who restrains his lips is wise. What's, what is it that Lincoln says, quoting the Proverbs? Better for a man to keep his mouth shut and be thought a fool than open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> yeah. 
Notice how Jesus challenges us to do this because this level of acceptance is critical. By the way, it's the foundation of what we try to do in Alpha, right? To be able to listen with acceptance, without judgment, with acceptance. Here's what he says. By the way, at the end of chapter 6 in Matthew, he has just said to us, I want you to learn to love your enemies the way your father loves his. He makes the rainfall and the good and the bad. He is an equal opportunity lover. I want you to be perfect like him. Here's the strategy. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Do not judge. Or you will be judged. In the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. The same measure you use, it will be measured to you. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, here, let me help you with the speck, get the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly enough to help your brother with the speck that is in his eye. And while they're thinking about it, don't give to dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they're going to trample them under their feet. They're going to turn and tear you to pieces. Here's the strategy. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek. And you'll find. Knock. And the door will be open to you. Because everyone who doesn't give up on asking receives. Everyone who doesn't give up on seeking finds. The one who keeps knocking will soon find a door that's open. Genius. Notice what Jesus is saying here. Uh, it, to begin with, he's, he's, it's not that your brother doesn't have a speck in his eye. He actually does. It's actually painful. It's actually disabling your brother. It's just that the plank that is in your eye disables you from actually helping your brother. And the plank that is in your eye, in case you wonder, is the judgment you have because your brother's got a speck in his eye. We're crisp and clear and clean on what our brother is doing wrong, not noticing that what disables our helping our brother with what he is doing wrong is our judgment of him for doing that wrong. That's, that's what he's after here. It's not, again, like the, the behavior isn't the wrong thing. It's not self-sabotage. Jesus gets that. It's a, he's, he's, he's not pat everybody on the head and say everything's fine. He's saying, no, actually there is real need out there. And your condemnation of them because they do this, that, or the other disables you from actually helping them. So get the plank out of your eye, the plank of condemnation, the plank of judgment, so you can actually be useful in helping them deal with their disabling pieces of their own fragmented life decisions. And then he says, while we're at it, don't give sacred stuff to dogs. And he's not demeaning dogs or people. What he's saying here is that you, you, you people speak in such highfalutin, spiritual, sacred language to people who have no idea what you're talking about. What do you, they don't worship the same God you are. Of course the Ten Commandments aren't useful to them. It's not that the Ten Commandments aren't useful or whatever it is. It's that the reason they're important to you is because who lies behind them, the sacred realities. 
when you pummel them with your sacred truth without relationship, it's not helpful. Right? Don't give your pearls teachings of value, words of wisdom to those who are not nourished by them. How many times do we, can I just say, as we're disciples of Jesus, go into our arguments with our secular friends about fill in the blanks, and we leverage our Christian arguments, our, our texts of scripture and our, 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 our humanities. It's not that we're wrong. It's just that we're speaking language which is not understood as valuable by the persons to whom we are speaking. And Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to look to you for, for food. And what you're dealing out will not be received of them as food. And they will tear you to pieces. Doesn't that sound like what's happening in our world today? Why do survey after survey in the last probably five to ten years that I'm personally aware of, indicate that the secular world, people who are not yet Christians, people who are, uh, are pagans, if you wish, view Christians as being angry, judgmental, intolerant, not just of people, and their, but their lifestyles as well. Anybody want to guess why the world views us this way? Because this is how we are. No wonder. Don't you think... If we had gone with the posture of Jesus, incarnational, let me move into the neighborhood, let me learn your story, let me learn your language, let me hear your back, that, that when we finally got around to saying there might be a better way that we can think about, knock on some different doors, ask some different questions, seek some different solutions that we might have had more buy-in from people who believed that we knew their story. This is what he's saying. We honor people by treating them as persons. We can do this because, like Jesus, there's never a moment, and it's, this is really critical, back on the boundary piece that I was talking about before, where Jesus did not know who he was. He was not people-pleasing ever, not even amongst his friends. He could care less what they thought of him. And that enabled him to love them well, whether they liked it or not. Right? Uh, he was solid in his identity. And it was out of this, that solid, boundaried identity, a healthy, whole self, that he could love with freedom. Here's John's take on this in chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world, to go to the Father. He loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Now down verse 3. Jesus knew, listen to this, that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And out of that self-knowing, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his followers' feet. drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus was massively secure in who he was. It's the only way you can love incarnately. 
right? So the place we begin is with emotional health. The place we begin is with spiritual maturity so that we can be some solid enough so that we can actually love others the way Jesus has loved us. Did you all hear that? My age, you wonder if it's a summon of some kind. It's just like... Okay. Here's what this looks like. In case you want to know, here's the metric. Paul writes this in, in a highly conflictual situation based on massive spirituality that has produced massive immaturity. Here's what love looks like, he says. It's patient. 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It doesn't seek its own way. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. This will be on the final exam. <laughs> Here's Paul's way of saying it. The fruit of the Spirit, the life that the Spirit produces in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control. Against love like this, there's no need for a law. That's the marker, yeah? And it's not the marker by which we evaluate how other people are doing. It's a marker by which we look in the mirror and say, Holy Spirit of the living God, help me to grow up into usefulness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.